Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to episode 52 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Brian Duffy from Philadelphia. Brian Duffy is the chef known for numerous appearances on TV series Bar Rescue and has a podcast called Duffyfied Live. He is passionate about casual dining and he even made a business out of his passion with his consultancy firm focusing on small restaurants and bar operators. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. If you are new to the podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the country. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown, and you can find the show notes from this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. And now here is my conversation with Chef Brian Duffy, where we talk about what made him focus his career on casual dining after attending culinary school and working at fine dining restaurants. And he's going to share with us the different steps restaurants and bar owners have to take ramping up to opening night. Hey, good morning, uh, Chef. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm super stoked to be here finally after all this uh, time of trying to put this together. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. Uh, you know, with uh, you guys, uh, you have a hectic, obviously, uh, you know, calendar, especially at the moment. And, um, you know, we need to make sure as well that we are in a, in a good setup, uh, you know, for the recording. Uh, you know everything about this because you are a professional of uh, podcasting. I do. I do. How is it going? Uh, I actually stopped. I stopped oh, for really? a while. Okay. Yeah, I needed a break. It was just my my between travel and the restaurants mm-hmm. and and everything else and shooting and it just got to a point that tried to record and be upbeat, energetic, you know, have all that going mm-hmm. all the time and and trying to get people and trying to get guests as you know, which is really one of the hardest things. Yeah. Absolutely. So I kind of slowed down for a little bit. I took, I guess I've probably taken a month and a half off now. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just uh, but are you go- are, Yeah. Are you going to come back to it? Do you, do you think? Yeah, or? I will. I will. You know, I mean, trying to get guests onto the show. And then the next part of it is really the technical issues. It's like the amount of people that don't know how to use Skype. So I just kind of slowed down and. You know, it got to a point that a lot of podcasts that I was getting guests on for ended up being commercials. Uh, mm. People didn't really want to, you know, I mean, it was just like, you know, oh, okay. it was a constant talk about, you know, I'm, and I'm a chef. I like to talk to people about food and have fun. Sure. So how has been the, um, that this whole craziness of, um, you know, the pandemic for you? Because it's obviously impacted, you know, the hospitality industry big time. And it's been a, a, a huge, like emotional roller coasters, you know, for, for chefs and people in the hospitality, you know, industry. So how have you lived it personally? On my level, it was a little bit different. I was involved in a series of restaurants with clients and partnerships and all that stuff mm-hmm. and ownerships. And I got rid of everything in January. So 
Uh, my number one focus for this year was for my restaurant, my barbecue place. Yeah, which is Ardmore why I got Q, rid of correct. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Ardmore Q. It's a little, it's a little smokehouse, a little barbecue joint. We play really loud music, and uh, yeah, just in the suburbs of Philly, we play loud music. We, uh, we, our number one goal is just food. You know, I mean, we're not a uh, service destination. It's not like I have servers and. You know, people running to tables and selling booze and all that. So for us, it was kind of a no-brainer for us to walk right into the to-go arena because we were already doing it. So we had we had a good three months of sales. I mean, things worked well for us. And as soon as it happened, I made the decision that I was going to feed any hospitality employee who got laid off. So we started to do a thing called staff meal, which was, you know... Basically, if you called up and said that you, you were laid off, we wanted to know what restaurant. And, uh, that was about it. You came in, you picked up food. We made a different staff meal every day. There are individual meals that go out. We would sometimes feed at a guy who called in every single week, you know, and every time he came in, I gave him lunch and dinner. So I gave him two things, one for him and one for his wife at night because he would get dinner and then. I would give them food for the next day, totally separate dishes. So, you know, he was one of the most memorable ones. I had about five dudes walk in one day. They were all barbacks and bartenders from a restaurant in Philly. And so we had a real good amount of people. And then people started to hear about it. And people started to call in and say, hey, can we purchase meals for people? So I created a program called Staff Meal, which you could order for $10. You would basically pay $10 and it would feed three people. Every time that somebody placed an order, we actually had post-its. We put them all over the wall. So anybody who walked in, they could grab one. It was a fun little program. And, you know, we got to see hospitality industry and have conversations with them and find out what's going on with them and how they're handling everything. And it got to be a, it, it was a neat experience for us. Yeah. And I think that's all the, the, the people working in uh, the, all that worked, uh, unfortunately, in the, the hospitality industry. Uh, really need that at the moment is like any type of platform when they can connect, you know, with others. Oh yeah, and they can they can exchange and they can uh, you know have like human interaction that um, you know are dramatically missing, you know, at the moment. So it's a great things that uh, no no you have done. And um, if the people are interested, in fact, they can follow your stories on uh, like I do on Instagram on the Chef oh, yeah. Breeduff at Chef Breeduff and um so they can they can see um you know all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean Instagram's Instagram's a lot of fun for us. We have a good time on there. Yeah. Was the uh, the restaurant like open, you know, at, uh, in March, uh, uh, you know, already or did you had like a a, a closing uh, no. you know time? So, Pennsylvania, this has been the weirdest kind of part about the whole thing was so nobody, nobody really knew what was going on. I mean, I was in Florida. You know, I, I had an appearance down in Florida at one of my clients' restaurants, which is called City Tavern. It's a great little spot. And at this point, Florida was still open. You know, nobody was, Florida wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in the rest of the country. And this was March 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. So this was smack dab at the beginning of the whole thing. So. I mean, I remember being in my, in the restaurant and on St. Patrick's Day, things were just kind of going back and forth. And, you know, they had shut the event down, but my client had a private license that he was able to continue doing an event. So we continued to do the event during that time frame. 
And then as I, when we finished the event, I got home at the end of the day, I started to kind of look at the news and I was like, I got to get out of here. You know, I got to get home. So I booked my flight for Tuesday. I changed it originally. I was going home Wednesday and I hopped on a plane on St. Patrick's Day. Super weird. I had a mask on. I had gloves on. I had operating room sanitary wipes that I was literally, you know, everywhere I went, I wiped down because we didn't, you know, I mean, this was, this was the beginning of it. Yeah. Yeah. The whole contact things, you know, at the beginning was, was big. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there's people in the airport and I'm looking at people and they're sharing drinks and hugging each other and coughing and kissing. And I'm like, man, I got to get the hell out of here. And uh, I did. I flew home at a direct flight. I landed in Philadelphia and like the blur just started to happen as soon as I landed. The streets were empty. I mean, Philadelphia was shut down at that point. The streets were completely empty. It was a ghost town. and. I remember coming home and I had sent a text message to my whole staff. And I said, at this point, we're open. If anybody is uncomfortable working, please let me know right now. And the two people that said that they were uncomfortable were a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old girl who were working for me, my niece and my daughter. Uh, My (laughs) daughter didn't really want to work because her mom's husband, my ex-wife's husband works in a hospital so fiona couldn't even leave the house fiona was fiona did not leave her house oh, sure oh, for yeah. five she was quarantined straight. Yeah. you know she was quarantined yeah. the rest of my staff said like look as long as you keep us safe we're good to go so we did you know i mean we kept everything super tight we we only allowed a certain amount of people in the restaurant and then the fluctuation started to happen where you know, they were saying it's going to be two weeks. You know, we'll go, we'll go until uh, the beginning of June. Oh, I'm sorry, until April. And then it was May. And then it was, I mean, it just never ended. And now they just told us again that restaurants are not allowed to, to reopen until September 1st. So you're talking about March to September. And in Pennsylvania, we were allowed to have open dining. You were allowed to be inside the restaurant. As long as you were distanced and you had, you were allowed to open at 50% of your capacity. So if you think about a restaurant like me, who is 1100 square feet on the first floor with 600 of that square feet, 700 of that square feet being utilized for kitchen counter service space. That means that in reality, I can only have two tables in the restaurant. Well, for me, I don't want people in the restaurant in the first place. No offense. During the summers in my restaurant, it is 100. When I walked in there last night at 10 o'clock, it was 107 degrees inside the restaurant. Wow. Sure. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't have air conditioning. I have a 225 degree smoker that is inside of the dining room. You know, I have to have a hood on. When the hood's on, you can't hear people. During the winter, it's brutally cold. So for me, the inside is not the ideal place to be. I'll make updates for next year, but for this year, it just wasn't worth it for me to even do it. So we opened outside and we opened outside in about the middle to late April. I just got sick and tired of being inside. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I started a thing called my way or the highway. And that means (laughs) that I make a burger on Saturday afternoons. That's my way or the highway. 
There's no modifications to it. It's a $5 burger. And the first day we sold 25 of them. This week I sold 98. So, you know, I mean, it's, it was a good opportunity to get people out of the house. They socially distanced themselves because I have six foot picnic tables. So people were, and I have eight of them outside of the restaurant. So people strategically kind of went out and lined up. I've told people, if you guys want to bring chairs and tables, do it. I put my grill in the middle of the street. It's a wood fired grill. We set up and we cook burgers. And that was because I was tired of being inside. And you have done some other, I, I'm going to call them pop-up, but it's maybe not the right term, but you know, in different locations, correct? Around Philly? A little bit here and there. I do. Uh, I partnered up with a brewery called Bald Bird Brewing, um, and they're in Audubon, Pennsylvania, which is just, if anybody knows Pennsylvania, um, it's about 15 minutes from Villanova. It's about eight minutes from the King of Prussia Mall, which at one point was one of the biggest malls in the country. But it's, uh, you know, it's just a cool little spot. It's a big parking lot. Uh, we pop up a huge tent and we bring the smoker out or we bring a wood-fired grill and you know, we just, we go to town. We, uh, you know, we char every, every burger bun, uh, every brioche. We do pulled pork sandwiches and pulled chicken. And, uh, this, wa- this past week I did smoked sausage cheesesteaks. So I did a kibasi. I did a smoked sausage. We did caramelized onions. We do a barbecue cheese whiz. I love that. Yeah. Mm. We have a good amount of, we have a good amount of fun. Any, any style, um, you know, of like a type of barbecue that you're doing or? You know, my barbecue is more on the Texas side because of the rubs that we use, but I don't really follow any one style. I mean, my, my main barbecue sauce is called America sauce. So it's a combination of all four styles of barbecue. So it's got molasses, it's got vinegar, it's got dry rub, it's got mustard, it's got ketchup, it's got brown sugar. So we really hit all four styles of barbecue in one. And I actually made that sauce for the military because I do a lot of work with the military. And I, we, uh, I work for a group called the Mess Lords. And we volunteer our time and we fly all over the world and cook for the troops. It's pretty awesome. Wow. Sorry yeah. for the yawn again. <laughs> you need your jug of coffee here. I know. I've got it right <laughs> next to me. So I'm curious here because, you know, we'll come back to the whole situation of, of the pandemic because I have some other thoughts and things that I would like to have your, yeah. your uh, feedback on. But because you are, you are talking about this, you are, you are passionate about, you know, those type of, I would say, mainstream restaurants, you know, barbecue, burger, pizza, and so on. But, you know, at the beginning, you, you went to culinary school, like a lot of, you know, chefs, you know, in Philly. After graduation, you, you work for like a James Beard Award, you know, winning chef at the Four Seasons in Philly. Yeah. So you, you could have done with like a path with a lot of other chefs that done, you know, into fine dining, but you haven't done that. And, and so I, I'm curious, why is your passion and your focus, you know, and, and other things that you are going to, we talk about your, your career and, uh, and your role as a consultant and so, you know, in that industry. But you focus on this, I would say, like mainstream, like like restaurants. And I thought it's fascinating. So I just wanted to have your your thoughts on that. You know, I always say that the moment I got into school, I fell in love. because I really enjoyed the concept of cause and effect. I've always been a science guy. I love cause and effect. And so school just hit me right off the bat. Like, I was really into it. And, 
you know, I mean, I was kind of a dick in school. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was, I was inquisitive. I wanted to know what was going on. I was constantly asking questions to the point that my instructors were like, you're a pain in the ass. You know, like it was, it was, I remember I went back in to teach concept development at my alma mater and I was walking down the hallway and the Dean of education walked past me and he's like, I heard you were going to be doing this. He's like, welcome back, whatever. And he said, I hope you have two of you in your class. I hope <laughs> you have two of you. Cause I, and I knew what that meant. You know, I was a rough, I was tough. You know, I was, I was in competition with every other student in there because we were all leaving and going to be graduating at the same time and going for the same jobs. So I was super aggressive. While they were starting a softball team, I was working two apprenticeships. I did my apprenticeship at the Four Seasons under Jean-Marie Lacroix, a phenomenal, wonderful, wonderful man who every day he walked into the kitchen in his pristine white jackets and shook everybody's hand and said, thank you for being here. And then I would leave the Four Seasons and I would go to a restaurant called San Marco, which was this beautiful Italian restaurant that was owned by uh, Lucio Fini and Fausto De Carlo. And I learned Italian food and I learned how to break down veal from Fausto De Carlo's father, who used to smoke Marlboro 100s in the kitchen <laughs> and leave the ash on there. And he'd be breaking down a side of veal with, you know, with a pen stroke. You know, it, it was, it was a beautiful, it was an art to watch him use a knife. And to follow the striations of meat and the fat lines and the muscle lines and be able to break these things down. And from there, I graduated. Oh, and I also bounced at a bar at night. So I was like two apprenticeships wow. in the morning, bouncing at a bar at night and then going to school full time at the same time. Good to I, be young. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and so I had that work ethic instilled in me from my father, from my mother, you know, moving into things. And so I graduated from culinary school and I went into a fine dining setting down in Key Largo, Florida. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. I loved the artistic approach to it. I loved the passion behind it. I loved the the creativity. I, I, I enjoyed the rush, the getting burned by the asshole chef named Jay Anderson, who stood next to me and burned me every day. Uh, you know, these were the things, but I came back to Philadelphia and I started to go into these smaller locations and I loved, it. I loved the creativity that I had where I could put food on a plate for the regular person that was updated, upscale, upper class, but I didn't have to charge the same prices as a lot of the fine dining places were. Because I had half the staff and in reality, I had half the ingredients of the uh, a cost of the ingredients going onto the plate. So as a, as a chef, I was able to make more money for the owner by doing it the way that we did it. Now I've opened fine dining properties. I've opened, you know, super high end haute cuisine style restaurants and the whole nine yards. My passion plays in the casual realm. That's what I love to do. I mean, I love to put the chef technique into everything that we do because I utilize my culinary degree every single day. Do you think that this, you know, passion and after what became like an expertise that, you know, you have used and 
coached, you know, other and is going to be really the, the right things to have at the moment because I think that there's a lot of people in the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry that are coming back from like the bigger, the better, you know, like the, the bigger restaurant, the better because of like the, you know, the whole situation. And at the moment, people understand that they can be profitable with like a much smaller, you know, a structure, more smaller team and deliveries and, and pick up and so on. So that connects more with the casual, I would say, space. And you have a ton of experience there. So that's probably something that you can leverage because a lot of people are wondering, how do I do this? You know, what's the best practices, you know, to do something like that? I mean, I heard a horrible number yesterday. That is that 85% of independent restaurants are going to close before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. 85. Wow. 85%. Now, how dramatic is that? Who knows? In reality, where do we get any of our news from these days? I don't trust any of them. I think they're all full of shit, every part of it. So I listen to three news sources. I listen to CNN, I listen to Fox, and I listen to NPR to balance out my life. You know, that's the only place to go. So, so who knows where we can get these things? But even if that number is 50%, we are going to have a massive resurgence of the restaurant industry with these younger chefs who are going to be able to walk into properties that were shuttered, you know, with high-end kitchen equipment, with full dining rooms ready and set to go because these people just couldn't, couldn't, you know, weather the storm. But I also think that we're going to be, we're, you know, we've been walking out of the fine dining space, and that's a horrible word to use, fine dining, but we've been walking out of that space for many years. We are in a casual concept now. People want to be able to go into more of a gastropub style setting, go in, sit down on a weekly basis, as opposed to a super high-end fine dining restaurant that you're only going to maybe two times a year. You know, those special occasion places, I feel, are just going to, they're taking, they're, they're going by the wayside. And we're now seeing that most of them are closing anyway. Do you think this is, you know, for the good. I mean, this is good. This is bad. What's your thoughts about this? Because I, I think that the, you know, having this, I would say variety and, and choice and, and this whole gamut of, you know, farm, fast casual, casual dining, you know, and fine dining makes like, um, really like, um, you know, the culture of, um, you know, of, um, of a country and the diversity is, uh, like is important. So I, just to have your your thoughts on it. Is it going to go away for is it going to go away 100%? No. Not at all. But there's going to be few that can weather the storm. I mean, you know, I look at a restaurant around me that's called Savona, which is a beautiful restaurant that was I'm not sure who the chef is there now. But the chef who was there prior that I knew about was a master chef. You know, they just spent probably probably 40 grand in putting a, uh, a parking lot tent up, you know what I mean? So their entire, and it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful setting. It's a black platform that has railings around the outside of it with a huge tent over top of it with tweel draped in the, on all of the edges with lights that are, are, you know, twinkling throughout the whole thing. It's beautifully lit. It's beautifully presented. 
what are you going to do in November in Philadelphia? <laughs> yeah. Because they're saying we might reopen September 1st. It was June 1st. It was July 1st. It was, you know, now it's, you know, then it was August 1st. Now it's September 1st. So what are these restaurants going to do in November? Because guess what? It's cold in Philadelphia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, November, December, January, February, March, April are cold months over here. So for, you know, that's my fear. I, I think that we're weathering right now what we can because of the fact that people can go outside and eat. You know, I mean, but then we, then we, we walk up against this other thing like Philadelphia just said, okay, you guys, you know, we're doing outdoor dining, but then Philadelphia walked through the streets a couple of weeks ago and wrote fines to everybody who had outdoor dining that didn't apply for a permit. So it's like, as a state, we're shutting you down. As a city, we are shutting you down and putting regulations on everything that we do. And then on top of it, you've got these little mom and pop shops that are just trying to make it. And now we're going to give them a fine because they don't have a permit. Yeah. Like we're hitting every single, it's almost like a screw you around every corner. Everything that you're describing, all those like tough situation of people being laid off, furloughed. Um, you know, this uh, situation of, um, you know, fine dining, which is, you know, in a very bad situation. And do you think, do you see a positive, you know, that there's some positive outcome, you know, in uh, for the hospitality industry at the moment, you know, in the, in the pandemic? The one thing that I, I have as a takeaway of all of this is that we're a tough group of people. We're tough. We literally have pivoted. We have adjusted. We've readjusted. You know, the whole idea of hospitality is that interaction. It's an interaction between people and we are, we're segregating the restaurant industry by saying, you have to wear a mask when you're in the restaurant while you're working. You have to wash your hands every seven minutes, whatever it comes down to. You know, we have so much responsibility, but the guest is still just willy nilly, man. They're just doing their own thing. You know, they're taking their mask off as soon as they walk in the restaurant and they sit down. You know, I mean, the positive that's going to come out of this is that I think we're going to have a stronger restaurant union. And by union, I don't mean union. I mean, a a stronger restaurant community because we've all made it through this. You know, we're, we're going to make it through it. It's just that simple. We're just having a really hard time pivoting right now. Because we don't have, and this is not a political statement, we don't have the leadership that is telling us in reality what to do. We have multiple people telling us and giving us different directions of what to do. Wear a mask. No, if you wear a mask, you're going to get sick. Wash your hands. No, you don't have to. It's like, you know, we're just constantly going around this whole thing. So I think the huge positive from this is that we're going to walk out super strong. Right now, we, you know, we, we don't have a solidified world. As when all of this happened, we had 8 million people that were laid off at one moment. And right now, we're having a hard time getting those 8 million people back because 75% of those 8 million people, and that's a number that I just made up. I'm just having a, a conversation, but 75% of those people are making more money than they were before. So for me, I'm trying to find a really good 
kitchen manager at this point. I don't need a chef. I need a worker. I need somebody who's going to come into the restaurant, who's going to light my smokers when I'm not in the restaurant, who's going to follow my lead and my technique. But people don't want to work because they're making too much money staying home. I've had people not show up for interviews. I've interviewed people over the phone that were unbelievably promising that then when we sit down and we start talking and they're like, well, you know, I'm making more money at home. So what can we do about this? And it's like, you know, it's just getting really bad, getting really, really bad and scary. But when we come back, we're going to be strong man. we're going to be super strong because I think that the labor laws are going to change with it. The pay rates are going to change with it. And I think that the average consumer is getting much more of an understanding of what happens in restaurants now because we're all, everybody's talking about it. Exactly. I think that, uh, you know, the positive aspect is exactly what you are mentioning. And the fact as well that the, the people reconnected, you know, with food and the experience of food and, and good food, you know, at home during, during that, uh, you know, the quarantine time and so on. And, and, and with all the chefs now being on social media and, and doing a lot of um, demos and, you know, talking about it, I think it's, it's one of the, you know, if I, I may say like, you know, a positive spin, you know, on, uh, on oh, the yeah. situation. Well, and I think, I think it's so neat to watch, you know I mean? It's really, look, when I first started, when all this happened, I was doing my videos in my kitchen. You know, I was, I was doing a lot of that. I was really enjoying that time. And then, you know, five weeks, six weeks into it, I look around and it's like every single person who's ever worked in a kitchen is now doing a live Instagram video. Uh, so I kind of backed off. I was like, let everybody do their thing. And, you know, I started to really focus on the restaurant, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to focus on the restaurant, the business, my staff, the food, the execution, because we were thrown into a world of where we might do, you know, let's say that we did 50% to go before. Now we're at a hundred percent to go. So we've got to rework packaging. We've got to rework the way that we hold food, the way that it gets to the guest. Every guest who was coming in the restaurant, we started to let them know the best way to reheat the product when they got home, if your fries weren't crispy and stuff like that. But for me, I, you know, I really liked seeing a lot of the chefs that are out there that are doing the videos and doing the other stuff. I'll tell you right off the bat that I was pretty shocked at you know, a lot of the, the, the chef personalities, the celebrity chefs who just didn't do shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just didn't do shit. You know I mean? It, it, it was like, you know, if they weren't getting paid for it, they're not going to do it. And then food network basically was like, you guys got to start doing stuff. Now we start to see a lot of the food network chefs that are on there. You know, look, Michael Simon, he's brilliant. I loved what he did during the whole thing. His videos were brilliant. They were they were accessible to the average consumer. They were informative. I really enjoyed watching him do his stuff. Bobby Flay, he didn't do shit. He didn't do anything. <laughs> Whatever he did was boring. There was really nothing on there that was exciting. And then I think he kind of had a turn and he started to do some really cool stuff. And I love Bobby. I think he's a great dude. I think that he's uh, a brilliant chef to be doing what he's done for all of these years competition beat bobby flay uh grilling and chilling you know bat you know uh, the the competitions that he was doing while he was on the road 
There's a tremendous to be said about that. There's a lot of knowledge that has to be in a person's brain to be able to do that. But I think that a lot of these guys took it as a break. Let's sit back and, and not do anything. And now I think everybody's getting a little bored. And I see a lot of amateurs that are now becoming really, really good chefs. And I think one of the, the one of the funniest things that I did was I did a I did a whole video on how to break down chickens and how to break down ducks and and poultry and it was one of the highest viewed videos that I'd ever done. Yeah, simple techniques that people, people can apply want, at home. Yeah, yep. you know, Absolutely. and I was laughed. I mean, Jacques Jacques Pepin. Uh, you watch Jacques Pepin break down a chicken, and it is yeah, like did. watching an artist work. It's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're talking about celebrity chef and, and TV and so on. So how was your experience about this? Because you, you were in this uh, TV series, Bar Rescues, you know, some rescue some, some years ago. And yeah. then how is doing, you're still doing, because I know it was just like launching and so on this, uh, the Food Network opening night. So what's the, I so mean, I, yeah. So is it still who on? Knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows anymore? I think that TV right now has no idea what they're doing. Network television has no idea what they're doing. Um, everything is streamed. Every, you know, people, I, I, look, I haven't had cable in five years. When I had to watch the premiere of my show, I watched it on my phone. And I borrowed my buddy's direct TV password, you know, so that I could download the app and watch it on my phone because I don't have cable. Most people that I talk to say, hey, where can I watch it? And I'm like, oh, on Food Network. Oh, do I have to get the app? You know? And so what happened with that show was that Food Network uh, loved the show. And then they made some changes within internally. And we lost our, our network producer, our network executive, who ended up going down to Nashville. And she was a massive supporter of the show. Loved it. She created it with us. You know, it was a lot of her vision as much as it was mine, as it was the production company of High Noon. And then we went into another network. And then we went to another network. And then we went to another network. So now the passion of a show is, is diluted. And what they said last round was, we're going to hold off for a little bit until we air the rest of the episodes. And at that point, I said, hey, can we get me out of my contract? Oh, okay. So I was locked into Food Network, unable to do anything for a period of time. And I'm out of that contract now. What they're going to do with the show, I have no idea. Will it ever air again? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Because the concept was all about this idea of like, what you need to have when you launch a restaurant, creating yes. the menu, the pricing of the menu. But it was all about gearing up, you know, for the opening night, right? Because the yeah. opening night is critical and key, right? But can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a seven-day process before we opened restaurants. So when I open a restaurant, I don't take on all of the responsibility because if I take on all of the responsibility, then there's no ownership from the owners, the staff, anything like that. So what I do is I give homework throughout three months before they open the restaurant. And then what happens is I typically show up five to seven days before the restaurant opens to go in train the staff, make sure that they're ready to rock and roll. And then we have a series of events that lead up to that final opening night. So let, let me do it this way. Let me do two different levels of this. The first level is what I do when I open a restaurant. Okay. So my five-day process beforehand is 
my staff, the, the restaurant themselves will get food in on Friday and Saturday. So the food that comes in Friday is dry goods and dairy. The food that comes in on Saturday are pro, or is produce and meat. So perishable products are coming in, not long shelf life are coming in on Saturday. They then prepare the food, they get the stuff, they put everything away, and then they have a recipe book that they have to follow that they create the recipes. When I walk in on Monday, I do a full inspection of the property. I walk through the bar, I go through the dining room, I go through storage, I go through inside, outside, systems, everything. And then Monday night, we do a huge menu class. I take the entire staff, we sit down, we walk through the entire menu, including beverages. We talk about every single ingredient. If I'm making a blue cheese dressing, I'm telling you every single ingredient that's in that blue cheese dressing. If I'm talking about a burger, I'm walking you through the process of every single item that goes onto that burger, what station it comes off of, how fast it takes to get it out of the kitchen, what plate it's going to go on, all of that. So it's a very in-depth process that's about four to five hours of education. Tuesday morning, I walk into the restaurant. We do a, a first dry run of the first half of the menu with one staff. And then the next portion, we do the second dry run of the menu, which is we make every single dish. We double check everything. We taste it. Then Wednesday, we make adjustments to the food and we get prepared to do friends and family. Friends and family is when we invite in a series of people. They come in over a three hour, or I'm sorry, a five hour period where we invite them into the restaurant. They get to come in, sit down, order food. And we, li we limit what they can order at each table. So if you and I went in to sit down, you would get menu A and I would get menu B. Now, to the naked eye, they look exactly like the same menu. But what I have is I have markings for your menu that you can only order from that. So that way, you can't order a Caesar salad and I can't order a Caesar salad at the same time. What I want to have happen is I want you to order one thing and I want the guest, the other guest to order something else. So that we're making every single item on the menu, you know, and it just works that way so that every item on the menu is made in the kitchen. We do that on Wednesday. And then typically at the end of, by the time that third shift rolls around, your kitchen staff is on point. They've made every item on the menu. They're now working it. They're timing it. They're working well together. Afterwards, we close down and then we go through a full kind of download of what the night was. We go through every comment card because every guest that comes in to eat for free, they have to fill out a comment card. We go through the comment cards. We put all the negatives to one side. We put all the critiques to another side, and then we put all the really good stuff and we hide that away. We don't really care about the really good stuff that night. What I want to see are fixes. What do we need to fix? If one person says that the, the blue cheese dressing was too salty, then I go, okay, well, that guy just didn't like salt. But if 10 people say it was salty, then we have to adjust the recipe. And that's what we kind of do. So it's an adjustment phase. Thursday, we give the kitchen staff a break and we do a VIP night where we invite in all the VIPs, all the people that built the restaurant, the bankers, the mayor, planning committees, investors, friends, everybody. And we just put food out. There's no ordering of food. We just make food all night long. If I make one burger, what I do is I'll ring in 10 burgers into the kitchen, same exact burger. We cut all those burgers in quarters. They all go out on plates and we serve them to the guests throughout the whole night. 
It's an easier night. And then Friday, we open to the public. So that is the process of doing that. For the show, I never go through the menu. Like, I look at the menu, and I talk to the chef about the menu. And then I go into the restaurant, and then I watch the process happen. Because I've already given them a direction of what to do. And then I watch the process happen. And do you know what the number one common denominator is of every restaurant that we did on the show? Mm-hmm. No. Nope. <laughs> not one of them, not one of them had recipe. Oh, wow. So the chefs of all of these properties were just winging. Okay. So, you know, a cook is coming over saying, hey. Sure, cannot reproduce it. Yeah. You told me to cut all of these onions. What do I do next? So now the chef is running over and saying, do this, 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 this. Meanwhile, there's four other cooks that are walking around saying, what do I do next? So in my, in my real business, I will validate four people in the kitchen that me and the sous chefs will work with. And then those people go and they train the other people. So it's a really nice process for the way that this stuff works. Is it part of like under the umbrella of your company called the Defified Experience Group? Because oh, that's absolutely. how I think we we met, uh, and I'm sure you don't remember it, but we met like I don't remember if it's like four or five years back at the nightclub and restaurant uh, show in in oh, Vegas, and I yeah. attending your attending your one of the presentation that uh, you gave there that I thought was really really well done, and oh, uh, so we met after you know after the the, the presentation. And I always, you know, then kept track and, and stay connected, you know, with you. So, yep. but the, uh, the idea is that, um, I thought that the whole, uh, consultancy business that you had was, that's pretty, uh, pretty neat. So if you, you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, so my consultant business right now is kind of on, on hold. I'm doing a couple different projects with a couple different people, but I've really kind of slowed down because of the restaurant and because of what's going on. Restaurants aren't opening right now. Some of them are. But yeah, I mean, my business goes everywhere from concept development all the way uh, down to the actual openings of the restaurant to evaluations where I will walk into a restaurant as a secret shopper and I will give you a full evaluation of your restaurant. I typically will go in on a Wednesday night and I'll walk into the restaurant kind of, you know, uh, just super low key, sit down at the bar, order a drink, talk to the staff go to the table, sit or sit down and order some food. I usually have friends meet me in town uh, to go and sit with me and do this. And then I go through and I really am there for about four or five hours. I take notes during the entire time. So I just kind of look like a dude who's just on his phone texting. But in reality, I'm taking notes. Uh, it's funny. I once had a, uh, I once had an owner who walked over to me in the middle of me doing one of my evaluations about three hours in. And he looked at me and he said, I had no idea I was going to be paying you to sit on your phone and text all night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, uh, I will never forget this. And I looked at him and I said, I have zero reason to defend myself to you because of what it is that I'm doing right now. But I turned my phone around and I showed him my notes that were extensive extensive notes. I work off of a, off of an app called Trello where I put high priority items in there. I, I have pictures of every single thing that's going on. I have pictures of bartenders smoking cigarettes in the kitchen. Like you're shocked. 
And I looked at the guy and I turned around and I said, thank you very much. And I turned around and, start, and started to walk out. And he's like, well, where are you going? And I said, you don't trust me to do what I'm doing. I'm never going to trust you to be able to follow what it is that I'm about to set in place for you. So I wish you the best of luck in what you do. And he called me five or six times to come back in and, and kept throwing money. Will you please? Will you please? Will you please? And finally, it got to become a joke and we ended up becoming friends. And I ended up going back into his restaurant and resetting. And since then, I've opened two other restaurants for him. But it's, it's just kind of funny because the next morning after I do that initial evaluation, I go into the kitchen at 10 o'clock in the morning, chef jacket on the whole nine yards. And I start to work with the kitchen staff to find out what their process is to get ready. And then in the afternoon, I sit down with the owner or with the management team and I talk to them about what's going on. And then I sit down, I do a, uh, I do a session with all of the employees, no ownership, no management around. Um, I do a whole session with them to find out what they think is going wrong in the restaurant. Could you say to us, like, uh, share with us, what do you think are like the top, like three mistakes that you see that restaurants or bar owners are making? I mean, one, micromanagement. Two would have to be owners really trying to do stuff that benefits the owner as opposed to the guest. That's one thing, you know, I mean, uh, that's just, that's like one of the big things. And the other one is, is that owners are, that are just kind of non-existent. You know, I mean, it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle, you know, I mean, especially like for me, I was finding that problem. And that's one of the reasons why I, I hate to say it. I've, I really enjoyed the pandemic in the beginning because I was back into my business. I was operating my business. again. So it was a huge thing for me to get back in. The other, really the main thing would be a lack of communication with from, from management and ownership down to staff. The average person, when they leave nightclub and bar, and what I tell everybody is, I want you to pick your top 10 takeaways, and I want you to do this over a 10-day period with your staff. Every day, you're going to take one of your takeaways from the show, and you're going to communicate that with your staff. So let's say that you go to nightclub and bar, and you find a brand new music system, a brand new lighting system, you find a brand new POS, you find a chef consultant who's going to come in and redo your menu, you find a bar consultant who's going to come in and redo your menu. And imagine walking into your property after you fly home on Wednesday, and then Thursday, you call an all staff meeting. And you sit down with your staff and you're like, okay, first thing is first. One, here's a chef consultant. Two, here's a bar consultant. Three, everybody has to make sure that they're filling out this paperwork before they go. Four, here's what you need to do. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What your staff does is now they're overwhelmed, they're confused, and they don't know what to do. So what you do is you go back into your restaurant and you start with one item. Hey guys, here's the deal. I have 10 things that I'm going to focus on over the next 10 days that I want you guys to retain and be able to work with. Here's number one. I have hired Phil Wills to be my bar consultant. Phil's going to be coming in in three weeks to do this. I've hired Brian Duffy to come in and be my chef consultant. He's going to be here in five weeks. You know, so it's like you really kind of lay it out for your staff. So they're not overwhelmed. They're not being, they haven't been given too much information at one shot. Like it's really, it, it's really an important thing to do because as owners, we want to go to shows like this. We want to get as much information, bring it back and, and sure. institute it immediately. Absolutely. Yep. But it's not a good way to do it. And the same thing happens like when Bar Rescue was in its heyday and Bar Rescue was a respected industry source of information, 
managers of, of companies, managers of restaurants and owners would watch the episodes, go in on Monday morning and say, and have meetings and say, okay, here's what we take away from last night's show. Here's what I think we should do. How do you guys feel about this? And I think that, that Bar Rescue changed the restaurant industry for a period of time to be better. Yeah, but, um, and, and I, I know that using that word is the wrong one because of the context, but would you have like, wouldn't you have like an opportunity? That's the wrong word, but opportunity at the moment, you know, with all the experience that you have to coach, you know, people that could be in difficult time to how to pivot their business. Is there something there? Yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity for that because people aren't sure what to do. And look, I, I, you know, being a restaurant or an industry expert for as long as I have been, I'm just as confused as everybody else is. And the reason why I'm just as confused as everybody else is, is because we're giving, we are not being led the way that we need to be led. Look, the only person that I pay attention to when it comes down to, to the pandemic and what to do really is CDC and who. That's who I'm paying attention to. Whatever the CDC is saying, that's what I'm following. Okay. I'm not following anybody else. If they're saying that we need to, that we need to, to wear a mask, I'm wearing a mask. You know, if they're telling me that my staff in the restaurant has to wear gloves, then everybody in that restaurant is wearing gloves, which by the way, this, I'm sick and tired of the, the gouging that is happening with gloves and sani wipes. You know, I'm paying $125 <laughs> to $150 a piece for gloves right now that yeah. were 55 yeah. to 60. Yeah. So, um, and wipes you know, and wipes are impossible to find. You know, for uh, like the like the common you know uh, like I consumers. Bought, <laughs> I bought a case of wipes the other day for a hundred and twenty seven dollars. Uh huh. For a case of wipes, I mean, and you know, I mean, it is what it is. But we need it. We've got to do it. Then I'm fine yeah. with that. But okay. don't suggest. We're suggesting that you do this. We need a direct line of communication. To what needs to happen immediately. Okay. Um, and and that, that has to go forth, you know, and that happens with leadership across the board. So um, I, we have been talking um, a, a while here, but uh, I, I would like to pick up your brain, something that I do in um, each of the episodes that I have when I have chef, you know, on the show. Oh, I love it. What would be your suggestion for like a home cook or like a food enthusiast, I would say, to prepare an interesting burger or a slider, uh, you know, at home, but I would say Brian Duffy style. So what unique twists would you suggest them to do? My number one thing is to play around with different, you know, different cuts of meat. You know, you want to get a good, I mean, look, a burger is going to be good with fat. It's just that simple, you know, so to be able to get something like a really good brisket, and grind it up and make your own patties. If you really want to make a great burger, start grinding your own patties. You know, really get into finding a good grind of meat or a couple different types of meat. You know, I love, like, I mean, look, I love a burger that's got a small, you know, 10 to 15% of lamb in it because I think that lamb has an unbelievable flavor that just is enhanced by that grilling, by that searing, by that caramelization, that Maillard that is happening in that browning process. And I love lamb for that. Now, will I put lamb in my burgers? Not right off the bat because the guest isn't ready for that. But if I'm at home, that's my number one thing. The other thing for me is awesome cheese, 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 cheese. Yeah. Go and find yourself. I mean, for me, I love like, I love a Tillamook cheddar 
Oh, I love okay. a really good, super yep. sharp cheddar. Uh-huh. Um, I love, I love an, an, I love a Cooper American. Mm. I love Cooper American. The melting process of it, the creaminess, the umami that happens in your mouth with that burger, that fat, that cheese, that bun, that lettuce, that tomato, that onion. That to me is a perfect burger. And then for me, in reality, a, a, an unbelievable egg. Watch some of my egg videos of how to cook an egg. And, and it will change. I watched, you know, there's so many people that are, I don't know where it came from, but the idea that we have to constantly be moving a pan, <laughs> there's something to be said about science. If I have a steak or a burger and I put it into a pan and I'm constantly moving it around, I never have an opportunity to create a crust. I never have an opportunity to create to allow that scientific process of Maillard, which is that natural sugar that is released, that that protein starts to brown, we never let that happen. Or the other thing is too low of a heat. I watch people all the time put a pan on a stove and then throw a piece of chicken. You know, I mean, and it's not the way that it works. Well, my chicken tastes forever. I never get color on it. It doesn't taste good because you're not cooking it properly. So to me, now, if I'm going to do a sick burger, I'm going to teach people how to do it the right way. And I actually did a video that's on my Instagram and it's a duffified burger. And it was a commercial for a company called Ganella Bread. And I made a duffified burger that's on there and it is a basted burger where we actually seared the burger and then we basted it with butter and garlic and olive oil and rosemary like you would a steak. And it's an awesome burger and we top it with a fried egg. So that's, I wanted to ask you when you were talking about an egg, that's a fried egg, correct? That you're putting on well, it? Well, we, we call them dippy eggs in Philly. Yes. Okay. Dippy egg. Okay. Yeah, and a dippy egg is a, is a fully firm white uh-huh. with a runny center, mm. but it's got a fried crust to the outside of it. Yeah. That will only happen by letting it sit in the pan. Going back to your burger, to the meats. Do you add any seasoning, specific seasonings in the, nope. in the burger itself? All I do is I add salt and pepper to the salt outside of the burger. I season okay. one side. Now, here, here's the other thing that I watch people do that annoys me. And I mean this in a loving, caring, gentle way. <laughs> I watch people season the stuff after it's already being cooked. Well, mm-hmm. when you take salt and, pe- salt and pepper and you, I'm sorry, I have the, I'm drinking too much coffee now. See, I'm finally awake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I can hear it. Now I'm burping. <laughs> Good. Um, so what is happening is that uh, when you take that salt and pepper and you put it onto the burger before it goes onto the grill, the flat top, the griddle, whatever it is that you're going to do, you are now incorporating that seasoning into the meat. Okay. And what I mean by that is take your burger when it's raw and you're going to season the side of it that's facing you. And then when you turn, when you put that burger on your surface, whatever you're going to cook it in, you're going to flip it upside down so that that seasoned side is cooking first. Then you're going to season the other side. Because what happens is that salt and pepper is going to cook into that meat and flavor that, that burger that much better. But if I season it afterwards, it's like throwing sand against a wall. It's just not going to stick. It's just going to fall off. So technique dictates the outcome. So season your burger ahead of time, pop it into that grill pan and move forward from there. Any sauce 
that you add to your burger, like a mayo base or mustard base? Or I mean, I'm a mayonnaise guy. I mean, I'm a mayonnaise guy across the board. I just think, look, I mean, it, it, mayonnaise is awesome. It's fat. It's sure. fat and oil. You know, it's fat and any, oil. Any spin and, on the mayonnaise? Any Anything that you I put mean, in I there? I mean, I love to do an aioli or something like yep. that, but it all depends okay. on the burger itself. But if I'm just going to have a burger, if I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what? I want a burger today. My burger's going to be a buttered grilled brioche because I love uh-huh. brioche. Yep. And on top of, on the bottom bun, I'm going to put a shredded lettuce. I'm going to put three thin slices of tomato or one very thick slice of tomato. During the summer, I like a very thick slice of tomato because as I look out my backyard in this small little backyard that I have with my six, nine to 11 <laughs> foot tomato plants that are growing right now, I've got one whole plant just of San Marzano's. I've got uh, three heirloom plants and then I have two additional plants that are just kind of hybrids. But when I look out there, I literally am looking at a tomato called a black beauty that is almost ripe that I can't wait to slice that into a half inch thick slice and put it on a burger. <laughs> Great that good. is what I'm looking at when I see that tomato right now. But very cool. Uh, so then over top of that, bur- that tomato, I'm now putting a very thin slice of red onion and I'm talking paper thin that I'm shingling. Not one big thick slice. I'm breaking the slice apart so that I have rings of onions around the bottom of it. And then on top of there, I put my burger. And then on top of there, I will put my, uh, my cheese and my, and whatever else is going to go into it. But I'll on the base. And I forgot to tell you my base will be a little bit of ketchup, a little bit of mustard and a little bit of mayonnaise. So I'll do like a dot of mustard in the center. I'll do a ring of ketchup around that dot of mustard, and then I'll do a ring of mayonnaise around the ketchup so that I'm getting that full bite. And to me, that is an absolutely perfect burger. I don't need to add an egg or anything else to it. Just that burger, that cheese, that mustard, that onion, that ketchup, that lettuce, that tomato, that mayo, and all that. So, yeah. Let's finish the uh, the discussion here, the conversation we had with uh, a series of rapid fire questions, if if yeah. uh, I may. Go for it. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Uh, chocolate or ice cream. Bad. Cho- it's bad. What kind of ice cream? Come on, you have to tell uh, me now. <laughs> ben and Jerry's, Chubby Hubby, or fish food. Those are my two. Those are my okay. go-tos. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I just had it last night. Uh-huh. Can you give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? Crabs. Crabs? I love, I soft, love, soft shell? No, blue crabs. No. Uh, blue crabs. Hard okay. shell crabs. I was allergic to shellfish for the first 18 years of my life. Huh. Uh, and we lived at the beach. My parents had a house at the beach every summer. So we would go down and I would have to catch fish while mm-hmm. my, the rest of my family ate crabs and all the other uh, stuff. Okay. So I forced myself at the age of 18 to get over that allergy. And I now eat crabs. I am getting off the phone with you today and I'm ordering five dozen crabs because we're cooking them for my sister's birthday. Crabs are uh, a staple for me. I don't like Old Bay. I like my claws to be put into tomato sauce. I like a little bit of pasta, the old Italian way. And then the crabs, I have them cleaned ahead of time, meaning I clean them. And then I saute them in garlic and olive oil, salt and pepper, and a little bit of butter to finish them off. And I'm a happy, happy man. Give me a bottle of Budweiser, let it run Mm -hmm. down my arms, and I'm a happy guy. 
Okay. So, um, so that's what the first one, crab. What about the two others? Eating would have to be the way to go with it because I love to cook pretty much everything. Um, the second would have to be eggs. I love eggs. I mean, I love the process of them. I love the health benefits of them. I love the flavor. I love the richness. I think that it hits everything if you cook an egg properly. And the funny thing is, you know, a chef's hat, the meaning of a chef's hat with all the tote, with all the lines or the folds in it, the pleats was a sign of, of technique, a sign of, of respect. Because the more pleats you had in your hat, that was the amount of egg dishes you could create. That was the idea behind that. So eggs. And then third, I have refound a love of pasta. Whether it be my own homemade or somebody else's, I have found a new love, uh, refound, reignited mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a flame for pasta. The other night, I, I went into my garden. I grabbed a couple of tomatoes. I had some corn that I had fire roasted at the restaurant. I took some chives out of my garden, and I took a little bit of butter, and that was my dinner. Okay. I wanted to ask you. On top some, of, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, red sauce or olive oil and, you know, cheese? It, it depends on the dish. So I am a massive fan of uh, cacio pepe. I love the concept of it. The concept of pasta water, cheese, and pepper is a phenomenal way to go. I just think that it's a brilliant method, a brilliant technique to the point that I use my pasta water in almost every sauce that I create. So even the other night when I did my corn and tomatoes and, and, and I didn't even have cheese. I did corn, tomatoes, and butter and chives. I always save a little bit of my pasta water to put into my sauce. It's already seasoned. It's done the right way. Over salt. I always tell people, over salt your pasta water. There are times where I will save pasta water and I will put it into a little freezer, uh, ice cube trays. And then when I'm making sauce a la minute or just something for myself, I'll reach in, grab an ice cube tray, grab an ice cube and just throw it into my sauce and it will season it perfectly with a little bit of starch, a little bit of salt. Makes me super happy. Makes me feel nice good. tip. Thanks. Yeah. That. What condiment do you have in your fridge at home? Name it. Name it. <laughs> Absolutely name it. If I'm standing and I'm pacing right now, because when I talk on the phone, I typically pace. As I look in here right now, I have Feltman's of Coney Island mustard. They're hot dog mustard. I have, oh my God, I have Bliss steak sauce. If you've never had Bliss before, check them out. It's B-L-I-S. I have their steak sauce in here. I have their bourbon barrel uh, pure maple syrup. They make a smoked, ready for this, a bourbon maple barrel aged hardwood smoked soy sauce. The depth of flavor in this soy sauce is unmatched. What other condiments do I have in here? I've got some hot sauce from one of my buddies from G-Love. His hot sauce is in here. And then I also have another super hot sauce from one of my buddies out in Kansas City who owns a place called Grinders. Those are my condiments, man. I've got fish sauce in here. And then I have, I have uh, jelly. I'm a marmalade guy. I love orange marmalade. So I have orange marmalade in there because every now and then I crave a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on Dave's killer bread. Oh, and you put uh, orange marmalade with it? I do. With the, with the like peanut? Orange oh, marmalade. I have to try that. I have to yeah. try that. Orange marmalade, orange marmalade and chunky peanut butter. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, which if you so, chop up cashews and put it on your peanut butter, it's even better. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never tried that. What are like the top three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? I mean, LaRousse Gastronomique has to be one of the classics. You know, LaRousse was, is the, is the epitome of a chef. I mean, that's the, that's the whole idea of, of what we do is that, is that classic cookery of what LaRousse, you know, really put down in, in writing. That I have to say that I have to find the book. I think it's at the restaurant. There is an artist or an author. Can't find his book. There it is right there. James Peterson. James Peterson has a book called Fish and Shellfish that I love. And any of his other books that followed, he did a sauce book that are all brilliant. They're brilliant. And then to, to, to round that off, La Technique by Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin, yeah. Phenomenal Absolutely. book. Phenomenal yeah. illustrated book. You can buy it on Amazon for like three bucks now. My last one. What is your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Laziness. Yeah. Complacency. Laziness is, is, yeah. You know, and, and the, and well, see, but laziness follows on multiple levels. Yeah. Laziness. You know, not getting the job done today and waiting for tomorrow to finish. You know, I have a, I have a method, I have a motto for everybody. I would rather be prepared for 500 and be super pissed that I did 50 than to be prepared for 50 and have to do 500. So if you think about what that, 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 that quote kind of means, uh, what it, what it means is be prepared for your shift, you know, and, and tracking, uh, you know, the first three months of a restaurant, you don't know what you're going to do. It's a crapshoot. Once that three months passes, you've got a much better idea of what it is that you're going to do. If you're a restaurant that's been opened a year and you're not looking at last year's numbers for this year, then you're not prepared. I like your, um, you know, sentence. You have always key sentences and, and maybe you are going to laugh about this, but, um, <laughs> you know, I take notes when, uh, you know, I attend presentation and I have like right. one, like it's four words, but I have written when I was listening to you at your presentation and in nightclub and bar show. And I right. thought, and it was about, you know, an advice that you were giving to the manager or like the head chefs, you know, at the restaurants or, you know, the manager at bar. I know, right it where was you're going inspect what you, what you expect. expect. Yeah. It is that simple. I, I can, you know, I do it all the time in the restaurant and I have to remind myself over and over because I have a very young staff in my restaurant. I have to inspect what I expect. If I tell you that I want the walk-ins cleaned every Sunday night, I want walls done, I want floors done, I want containers changed out, and I just tell you to do that, but I never inspect them, then it's it's a futile attempt. Why is that person going to 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 do the job that's fully asked of them if it's never really checked up on? You know, I have a certain set of things in the restaurant that I like to be done before each shift. I want to make sure that the flowers are all watered. I want to make sure that all of our roll-ups are done. I want to make sure in this case that all of our plates, we wrap each plate individually with individually wrapped silverware on top of each plate during the pandemic. If I just walk in and I don't expect inspect that, then my expectation 
is not being met to what I want because the staff is just like, well, he really doesn't care. He's just telling us to do stuff. So you have to inspect what you expect. It's just that simple. And I think we should finish with this, Chef, like inspect what you expect. I think it's a great advice for, you know, everyone, not only in in a restaurant or hospitality industry and every leader's you know, need to um, live with this uh, or buy this. Yeah. So, Chef Brian Duffy, thank you so much for being a, a guest on the show. I, I really uh, love that finally we're able to, to connect and make yes. it happen. <laughs> I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your professionalism. And I really appreciate your questions and, and, and being uh, given the opportunity to be on here with you. So, thank you very much. There it is, me and Chef Brian Duffy talking about the current situation and the future of the hospitality industry. The key steps as well that um, restaurants and bar owners have to take leading to opening night. I hope you like uh, this episode. And if you did, please share it with another chef or uh, with a food enthusiast. I want to give a shout out to a great forum and educational resource for chef called the Learning Chef. It is created by Chef for Chefs, and they have a great Facebook page and Facebook group. The Learning Chef, make sure to check it out. In two weeks, my guest will be Chef Matt Bolus from Nashville, Tennessee, and his restaurant, the 404 Kitchen, and his whiskey bar, Gertie's Bar. We will obviously talk a lot about bourbon, and his really interesting concept launched during the pandemic called the Culinary Passport Staycation Dinner Series. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.